0: We now move on to looking at God's plan. Let's first look at Genesis 25 in which we're using to springboard into this doctrine of election. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now it's completely true that God has a plan. Since eternity, God had in His infinite mind a complete plan. The plan was not so much pointed directly at the creature called man, but it rather was a plan to glorify Himself and give the Son a bride. Man certainly receives the fruit of the gift to the Son. As the Father gives the Son a bride, without spot, without blemish, So man reaps the benefit of being made in such an image, and given as a gift to the bride. But the boundless love of the Father in giving his Son a bride compels us to understand that God has had a plan from the beginning in order that his love to his Son may be fully shown, communicated through the power and working of the Spirit of God. We can certainly find within the pages of Scripture innumerable references which point towards the fact that God does things according to His eternal plan, and that no one can change what God decrees. Consider the following verses. Jeremiah 32.17 Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Daniel 4.35 All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Ephesians 1.22 And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. We can also see in Ephesians 1.1 through 111, ending in verse 11, and it says, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. Genesis 18.14 Is anything too hard for the Lord? Isaiah 55.11 So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Isaiah 46.9.10 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Also in Jeremiah thirty-one three, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Or James one seventeen, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change, like shifting shadows luke 22:22 22, 22, the son of man will go as it has been decreed but woe to that man who betrays him they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen as he so comments and acts proverbs 21:30 there is no wisdom no insight no plan that can succeed against the lord psalm 115:3 our god is in heaven he does whatever pleases Him. Peter and John praise God in Acts 4:27 and 28 concerning the events of the crucifixion that all involved had come together quote, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. There are innumerable other references which show the same sovereign, complete, everlasting, infinite plan of God. God has a plan. And the plan itself is part of the very being of God. God does nothing haphazardly. Everything he accomplishes according to his will they are equally decreed in his eternal counsel. We often think of God's plan of salvation as one that is directed just simply to men, things that he does for men. But God's plan when it involves men is subordinate to his plan as it is linked to his glorification. God will be glorified in all that he does. So the act of sending Christ into the world is for the glory of God, primarily. The aim and goal of God's mind is to bring him the most glory. He is in active pursuit of his glory. All his divine affections continually seek that end. He has done this in sending his Son into the world that his Son may acquire a bride. Let's mention a little bit concerning the bride. Well, the Father shows His perfect love for His Son by giving Him a bride, complete and without blemish, as Ephesians 5.23 says. And the bride is seen in the perfection of the glorious church, as Revelation 19.7 says. This bride was the object of God's love. It was chosen. It was elected before the foundations of the earth. It was perfected, so to speak, before it ever existed. And it rested that way in the mind of God and his eternal decree. It is by the atoning blood of the cross that the church now stands as the bride, as Ephesians 5.25 says. And the blood was given for none other than the bride. For not a single drop of the Saviour's blood was used in vain. Romans 8.32 Romans 8.32 says He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The all things are the justification the glorification the sanctification everything that the Son bestows upon His church. The cross itself Was purposed before creation, decreed by God in His most wise and holy counsel, not to save all people hypothetically, but to save completely those with whom He had an intimate relationship in the bounds of His eternal love. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the first among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We often think of the cross as God's work for man, a gracious and loving gift which God has given to his sheep, which it is. Nevertheless, it seems many fail to recognize how the cross affects God in general and how it is directly a part of what makes up the Trinity. The love of the cross reflects the very core of the being of God. We fail to see how the limited atonement of Christ is a crucial part of the eternal dimensions in which God oversees the genealogical line of the woman, as stated in Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman is that which God bestows all of these gracious things upon, but it is a result of the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. God's unchangeable plan, his eternal unchangeable plan to give his son a bride through the spiritual lineage of the woman is exceedingly important, and it encompasses every facet of every part of the created order for those ends. The cross is designed particularly for the salvation of God's elect that his son would receive a bride. They are principally chosen within the divine council to be those who partake of the fruits of the cross's accomplishment. Some like to redefine the term limited atonement to limited redemption or definite redemption or particular atonement. And whatever term we happen to use, it is still the same concept. The cross of Christ is something that is absolute and has distinct and certain limits. It isn't that his power is limited, but the scope or extension of it is limited. It is precise. It is restricted in its function and form. Limited atonement gives us an insight into what God accomplishes in his plan. Limited atonement simply means that God sent his Son to die for a certain number of people, and that those people cannot be anything but saved. Christ's atonement is only for a limited number of people. But it is combining, in a sense, the being of God and his plan to give his son a bride. At the same time, we must never forget that the being of God and his purposes, which are external, come from a willed decree within his essence, making the two, the being and the plan, as one. His being coincides completely with his plan. They're part of each other. They're intertwined as one. Since the cross is the central event by which God completes human redemption, it is necessarily at the center of it, since it is an external decree of an inward purpose. It is a part of God himself. In other words, we say all that to simply say that his will is perfectly executed, perfectly executed, Executed. The execution of the cross is the means by which Christ the Son is to receive the gift of the Father, the Bride of Christ, the Church. John 17, 2-4, Revelation 21, 9, explain this. We can never remove the cross from the mind of God. It has always been and will always be the means by which God accomplishes all of his intended plans. As Paul writes in Titus 1, 1 1-3, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So the apostle tells us that eternal life was promised before the beginning of time. That is God's plan. And since God's plan has always existed, we see it running from before the creation of time itself. As John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He who was seated on the throne said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 21.1 Also verses 2, 5 and 6. The purpose is set before time, as Paul tells us. And it is consummated with the uniting of the husband and the bride christ and his church but the point to be made here is this the plan is number one set number two of god number three already completed in the mind of god number four has a beginning in time and number five in time it has an ending It's like the film from a movie projector. We see things frame by frame where God is intimate with them in a complete, all-encompassing, instantaneous now. He sees the entire movie at the same time in a state of being. So we see definitively that God has a plan. Now, the second point to be thinking through is that God's plan is eternal because he is eternal. Boethius, a philosopher, explains eternity well when he says, "...now that God is eternal, is the common judgment of all who live by reason, therefore let us consider what is eternity, for this makes plain to us both the divine nature and divine knowledge." Eternity, then, is the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life." God's plan not only exists, but it is eternal. It is in that instantaneous now for God. God does, in fact, have a plan which stretches across time from beginning to end due to his eternal will. And this is specifically stated in the Bible on a number of accounts. The Bible tells us that God has always existed and consequently that his plan has always existed. There are so many scriptures that deal with this Exodus fifteen eighteen, first Chronicles sixteen thirty six, Psalm nine five, Psalm ten sixteen, Psalm thirty three eleven, Psalm forty one thirteen, Psalm forty eight fourteen, Psalm ninety verse two, Psalm one hundred three seventeen, Psalm one hundred six forty eight, Isaiah nine six, Isaiah thirty seven twenty six, Isaiah forty twenty eight, Isaiah sixty nineteen, Isaiah. Daniel 7.14, Daniel 7.27, Habakkuk 1.12, Habakkuk 3.6, Acts 15.18, Romans 16.26, 2 Corinthians 4.18, 1 Timothy 1.17, Hebrews 9.14, and the list goes on. Now you can rewind and look up some of those, but they all talk about the same idea. Since God is eternal, his plan is also eternal. It is his decreed mind for all things in all ages all that encompasses the divine being equals his will and this means that the will of God and the being of God are the same in this respect his being is continually present at every junction of created time in its fullness and is present outside of time simultaneously so God is limited in no sense and neither is his plan the dimension of time we live in cannot affect him in any way because he is present in his fullness at every point within the human timeline that's why the passage in Genesis 17:7 7 concludes that it is an eternal covenant that God's being is at every juncture in that particular way and the Abrahamic covenant is eternal in such a manner God doesn't change things he doesn't flip things midstream these things are all in an instantaneous now for him So not only is his plan eternal, but then it is also immutable, because God is immutable. God cannot change. He is immutable. In his simplicity and complexity, he remains the same. His whole being radiates the attribute of unchangeableness. And the necessity of his plan has much to do with the immutability of God. Imagine for a moment that God could change. Imagine that at one point he justifies the sinner and then at a second glance he could remove the promise of redemption from a child once born again. Imagine that all of your life you felt that God's hand was with you in word, in deed, in every action. Then your time came to stand before the Almighty. And he chuckles for a moment, stating that he has decided not to give you up to heaven and to his Son, but instead to give you over to the bowels of hell. Such a God could not be called just in any sense of the word. He could not be called God. Immutability is a necessary attribute of God, and without it, God could not be called God, for he would have within himself the possibility of change. God has said of himself in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Or as Balaam had said in Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfil? God is immutable. He is subject to no process of development. He is subject to no self-evolution. The scriptures agree. Exodus 3:14, and God said to Moses, "I am who I am." Psalm 102.27 But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You could also look up Isaiah 41.4 or Isaiah 43.10 or Romans 1.23 or First 1 Timothy 1.17 or Hebrews 1.11-12 or James 1.17 where God is said to have no shadow of turning. The immutability of God affects the particular nature of his intentions even in saving men. There are those who do not believe that God is immutable because supposing that he is immutable would deny God action among his people, which the scriptures clearly teach. But immutability is not inaction. It is simply the constantness of God's action. God's immutability dictates that he must only accomplish what he has desired to accomplish or wills to do. And that which he has intended to do. If he intends salvation to all men, then all men shall be saved. If he has intended salvation to some men, then some men are saved. If he intended to call all people and convert them by the gospel, then by necessity he must give what he promised in the application of the Holy Spirit in the inward call. If he has intended to offer the gospel to all men, then he must send preachers to every man that ever lived in order to complete his intended purpose. If he is intended to save some men by sending them the outward call and inward call of the gospel, that he must necessarily send the means to accomplish that end in preachers. One of my favorite designations of God's character and will stems from an anthropomorphic use of language in Zechariah 6.1. He says, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and, behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were made of brass. Here we find the mountains of brass. They are the immutable and unchangeable decree and will of God. The mountains of brass designate the immutability of those decrees, because God's plan is everlasting and unchanging. People often confuse things between the activity of god and the immutability of god immutability pertains especially to his being and how this affects his decrees and promises his activity is a necessary attribute as much as immutability but unless god can act there's no hope of an incarnation and all that would follow god's redemptive purposes would come to naught When we understand the doctrine, for example, of the hypostatic union, which is when the Son took on human flesh, or assumed human flesh, and how the human flesh and the divine nature stick together without mixing or becoming one another in essence, we see that there was no change in the divinity of the Son whatsoever. Turretin, for example, said, God was not changed by the Incarnation. The Word, or Logos, was made flesh, not by conversion of the word into flesh, but by an assumption of the flesh to the hypostasis of the word. So the scriptures assert that the Son merely tabernacled among his people. The Eternal didn't change, but the Son attached himself to the nature of man. Neither were mixed or assumed, but simply attached, without any injustice done to the nature of either. That is why we say that Christ is one person, the Divine Son, with two natures, God and man. But this doesn't create some confusion between the activity of God or what God does and the immutability of God. God's purposes in the cross are immutable because of who he is and shows us that the continuum or decree will remain forever unchanged. His plan will remain forever unchanged. The atonement remains as God purposed it from all eternity as unchanged in Christ so here we see that not only God will be glorified but that he will bring many sons to glory as well so he is active but he's immutably active his plan is eternal and it is unchangeable but it's also simple and unified again because God is God has no separate parts He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without doubt, but He is one God in all His divine being and attributes, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It logically follows that if God is unified in His essence, and His plan flows from His mind, which is part of His being, then His plan is unified as well. The plan is perfect. It's perfect in all respects, just as God is perfect. It is complete as God is complete. And since God is unity or unified, his plan is unified because it flows from his being. There is no other plan other than the one God proposed. There is no alternative plan or plan B for God. This whole idea of, oh no, things have gone bad with Israel, so I'll go to plan B and save the Gentiles is nonsense. God's plan cannot become better than it is, it's unified in himself. And God is perfect in every respect. It's eternal. It's unchangeable. It's simple and unified. And God's plan is accomplished because he is all-powerful to accomplish it. He's omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God who executes his will without any hindrance whatsoever. The Bible clearly states this over and over. 209 times in Ezekiel alone. God is depicted as sovereign with all power to himself. None can thwart his power. He created the heavens and the earth by the words of his mouth ex nihilo, out of nothing. He delivered his people from Egyptian bondage by dividing the Red Sea with the blast of his nostrils. His divine mind and the power of aseity sustains all things, for without God nothing would exist. The world's contingency is a testimony to the omnipotent power of God. In light of God's omnipotence, we can see that His plan is nothing short of all-powerful. His plan must be all-powerful to save the number of elect sinners it has been designed for. God's intercession on behalf of our sinfulness is another testimony to His power. God contains the very power of life within Himself, that is His aseity. And this power is used to uphold the life of the creature as imparted by God's sustaining mind. Thus, God's plan is powerful in its very essence. It is God in action. That's why the Apostle Paul can write, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. For those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, listen to what it says, he also glorified. Romans 8, 29, and 30 is commonly called the golden chain of salvation, unbreakable. But my interest here is the last three words of the chain. He also glorified. Paul is expounding on the surety of salvation and the power of the atonement to accomplish its design, not falling short in any place. We can be so sure that we are God's elect children that we can think of ourselves as being glorified already. But if we really believe in the eternality of God, then it follows that we are glorified in actuality in God's mind and in his plan if what Paul says is true and it is we must understand that because God is immutable that there's no potentiality in him we must then see this passage as actuality for him we are glorified actually at the end of God's plan our salvation is for us executed in time but with God it's an eternal plan it can be likened to the prisoner in jail the bail is just paid but the person is not released just yet the officer has stamped his papers freed but the jail cell has not yet been opened the prisoner doesn't experience the reality of the act until the jail cell is actually opened for him in due time so though we may be say uh, though we may be saved by god we will not experience glorification until later for god it is now. Thus, that turns us to see God's plan as actual, because God is actual. Potentiality has the ability to become and change. A baby has the potential to become an adult. A seed of a tomato has the potentiality to become a plant, and then a tomato itself. The Almighty, though, is purely actual and never potential, never hypothetical. Genesis 1.1 states, In the beginning, God. The Bible, right from the very beginning, assumes God. Assumes His being. It assumes He is in all His vast array. He is purely actual in all He does. There's no room for change, as we already read. Malachi 3.6 All He is, He must be. Because He is necessarily that way. In the same respect, what He decrees... This he always does in actuality. His decrees are actual, even though he may have decreed something before anything was. The Lamb of God, for example, was slain from before the foundation of the world. Before there was any world, God had already decreed in actuality that the Lamb would be the Lamb of God slain. There was an actual atonement, because before there was a physical atonement it was set in the mind of god because god is actual and not potential the plan of god was not some potentiality that could happen or that god hoped would happen there is a finite number of elect who will actually be saved no matter what the very essence of who god is makes that an actuality there is no one who is potentially saved. If God has not intended it, if he has not willed it, if he has not decreed it, it is not real. Thus, his plan is actual. The plan of God is vital in understanding election and predestination and understanding the atonement of Jesus Christ for his people. Without Solidarity within God's plan, we cannot understand the meaning of the atonement or its offer to men in time. We cannot fathom the condescension of the eternal purpose of God in any great light unless we look at his being and his purpose that are bound together. The attributes I mentioned in this particular uh, section are crucial to understanding the crucifixion and the free offer of salvation, of, of how common grace works or is better termed God's indiscriminate providence and the supposed duality of God's will. Without understanding all of these things we're going to have a problem understanding the basics of grace. Without understanding God how could we understand his attentions and plan? But if we could mark the center of God's plan with a pen we would be thrusting the metal shaft of that common pen into the heart of the cross At the center of God's plan lies Golgotha. At the core of a holy and righteous God stands the place of the skull outside the city of Jerusalem. God's very plan, His core purpose, involves nothing less than His redeeming power poured out in His all-consuming wrath upon the Son of God for His own glory. Yet, in all we try in apprehending this great and awesome plan of God, we must, with the preacher, say... He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So concludes this
1: section on God's plan. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwaters Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com.